0: In 1966, 108 Australians of Delta Company, 6 RAR, were ambushed by vastly superior numbers of Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army troops in a rubber plantation near the village of Long Tan. The next few hours saw one of the epic battles of Australian history. It was such a pivotal event in Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War that today, 18th of August, is known as Long Tan Day and is the official date of commemoration for all servicemen who served in that war. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australia's servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone and welcome back. So we're doing something a little bit different today. You've probably guessed that I tend to focus the attention of this podcast on the lesser known actions that our servicemen and women have undertaken. The main reason for this is that I reckon the big fights get enough attention and someone needs to be telling these other stories. But I do end each episode saying that if there is anything you wish me to cover, then drop me a line. Well, Aidan Hall has dropped me a line requesting an episode on the Battle of Long Tan. Now there's a couple of reasons I've decided to do this episode, although it is without doubt the best known Australian battle of the Vietnam War. One is a kind of a personal connection, but not really. You see, way back in the dark ages of January 1991, I joined the army and went to the Army Apprentice School in Bunagilla. I was placed into 11 platoon of Delta Company. And although it has absolutely no connection whatsoever with 11 platoon Delta Company of 6 RAR, our induction platoon sergeant, Sergeant O'Connor, reinforced that we need to maintain a standard that is worthy of, in inverted commas, the Long Tan Company. So you can say that pretty much from day one of my military career, I've always been aware of the battle and in some deep dark part of my being, I've tried to maintain those standards. I've no doubt failed more often than I've succeeded, to be honest. But here and now, with this podcast, I might actually have an opportunity to do justice to them and to live up to Sergeant O'Connor's expectations. Secondly, I can waffle on ad nauseum to try and convey to you what's going on within a fight and all that sort of stuff. Or you can watch movies that have nice impressive explosions and good-looking heroic soldiers and get a rough idea of what a battle might be like. But with Long Tan, I can actually let you hear what was going on. There are a number of clips on the interwebs, which contain the actual radio traffic recorded from that day. So I'll probably never get a better opportunity to take you into the heart of a battle, so you can hear what's going on while it was actually happening. I hope this won't breach any copyright laws, because if you're anything like me, after listening to some of this, you'll just sit there and think to yourself, holy shit, that's the real thing. Those are the voices of real men fighting for their lives. This will be a two-part series. The first part will be the key events leading up to the battle, and the second will focus on the fight itself. It is a long one, especially the second bit, but if that's what it takes to do justice, then that's what we'll do. So, where to start? Well, first up, if you want probably the best account of Australia's war in Vietnam, then you can't go past Paul Ham's book, Vietnam, The Australian War. He gives a fantastic account of just how Australia got involved in what was essentially a civil war in a small Asian country. It's quite an eye-opener, really especially for those of us who weren't even a twinkle in our father's eyes at the time. He devotes the first hundred-odd pages of this book to just that topic, so any attempt of mine to condense it into a couple of paragraphs will just result in a failure of epic proportions, so I'll give it a miss. Initially, Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War consisted of 1st Battalion Royal Australian Regiment, 1 RAR, being attached to the US 173rd Airborne Brigade. I'll be covering their exploits in a future episode. But this arrangement didn't really suit the Australians. They were more into the small-action, counterinsurgency type of operations they'd been conducting in Malaya since the mid-50s. The Americans, on the other hand, had a preference for announcing their intentions in a specific area by pretty much flattening that area with as much firepower as possible before sending their troops in. It got to the point that the Australian commanders began pushing for an independent Australian force which was free to operate as they saw fit. Eventually this was granted and Australia was given the responsibility for subduing Viet Cong activity in the Phuoc Thuy province. The 1st Australian Task Force base was established near the village of Vung Tau. One RAR had returned home and five and six RAR formed the original nucleus of the task force. The Australians, with the US 173rd providing assistance, secured ground around Nui Dat during Operation Hardywood and on 5th of June Brigadier David Jackson set up his headquarters and took command. As usual, I'll chuck a map on the website so you can get your bearings. Along with 5 and 6 RAR, the task force included 1st APC squadron, operating the rugged and dependable M113 armoured personnel carriers, 1st Regiment of the Royal Australian Artillery, which consisted of 1 New Zealand and 2 Australian batteries equipped with 105mm pack howitzers, and Number 9 Squadron RAAF, providing air support in the UH-1B Iroquois helicopters. There were also a myriad of other support units on the ground at the time. But for the purposes of this episode, the infantry, carriers, arty, and helicopters are the important ones to focus on. So what's the first thing you do when you've just set up home in the middle of ground surrounded by the bad guys? Well, obviously the very first thing you do is realise that it's quite an uncomfortable situation to be in. After that, you set about making it a bit less uncomfortable by clearing the surrounding area of anyone you don't want there. The trouble is, the very fact of being in such a situation meant that only half of the available force could get out into the bush and start work. The other half had to stay at the base to provide protection if the locals became belligerent and tried to remove you. The plan was basically to have anyone within a 4,000 metre radius of the base removed and resettled elsewhere. A free fire zone was then declared, with the outer limit being designated Phase Line Alpha. This meant that anyone seen in the area and not wearing an Australian or New Zealand uniform was liable to be shot at without warning. While from a military perspective, this was a wise move. Many of the locals probably didn't share the enthusiasm of being moved off their ancestral lands. As Australian war photographer Dennis Gibbons said, If they weren't VC sympathisers, they sure were after they were moved and their homes destroyed. It's a fair point, but if you wish to be able to send out patrols without the enemy being able to observe from up close, then there probably wasn't any other option. It was hoped that freedom of movement would allow the patrols to target suspected VC sympathetic villagers beyond Phase Line Alpha and then, after curtailing VC activity, the villagers would be able to resume their normal lives. Great care was taken to ensure villagers beyond Phase Line Alpha were secured as quickly and peacefully as possible. The inhabitants were to be treated properly, suspected Viet Cong taken into custody and then leaving the village intact and its people thinking that maybe the Australian types weren't too bad after all. It was a good plan, and early indications were that it would work. But someone forgot to tell the Viet Cong that this was a good thing. All they saw was another bunch of white blokes coming in to interfere with their plans of uniting Vietnam into one country under Ho Chi Minh. To them, French, American, Australian, didn't matter. It was just another obstacle to be overcome before they reached their inevitable victory. To overcome these newcomers, they needed to figure out how the Australians fight. The best way to do that was to throw overwhelming numbers at them and see how they react. The North Vietnamese Army, the NVA, and VC had done the same thing to the Americans in the Idrang Valley in 1965. They inflicted heavy losses on the Americans, but lost over twice as many of their own. But it didn't matter. They'd learned how to fight the Americans with their overwhelming air power. Basically, getting in as tight as possible so that the air power would be unable to provide support. Also, fighting in open ground wasn't to the North Vietnamese' advantage. It allowed the Americans too much room to manoeuvre their large units. Far better to take them on in the confines of thick jungle wherever possible. So, did these Australians fight the same way? Only one way to find out. Draw them out and then hit them in a location where air power couldn't come in to save the day. But where? Well, that plantation of rubber trees near Long Tan. That looks pretty good. Mmm. So while the Vietnamese were pondering their ponderings, the task force got on with the job at hand. But in the background, there was a feeling, which Brigadier Jackson described as, quote, This uncomfortable feeling that something funny was happening in Fuktui and nobody could put their finger on it. In the first few weeks, there was considerable rumours of something new developing in the province. Even the province chief was unhappy. End quote. Whispers, rumours and stories flew around the province like the breeze. South Vietnamese troops working with the Australians told stories of enemy troops massing, but they were difficult to credit. At one stage, Jackson was informed that 11 battalions of VC were within 5 kilometres of his headquarters at Nui Dat. These over-exaggerations led to most of the senior Australians ignoring pretty much whatever the South Vietnamese told them. But one thing they didn't ignore was a report from an SAS patrol which found that a new enemy had arrived in Phuc Thuy. So far, it had only been the Viet Cong, locally raised insurgency units, which had been the problem. Rooting them out and removing their threat to the villagers was a fairly easy way to fight a war. Now, the SAS had found the first indications that the North Vietnamese Army had arrived. Things were going to be a bit different from here on in. The North Vietnamese troops had three simple principles for waging this war, and they passed them on to their VC comrades. 1. Conduct a war of concentration, with as many campaigns in as many locations as possible. 2. Raise the standard of guerrilla warfare by coordinating the combat operations of the guerrillas, local troops and main force units and 3. Harmonized the military and political struggle. All civilians, women, children, farmers and the elderly were to be inducted into the war. Basically, rather than randomly hitting enemy troops or targeting villages whenever they felt like it, the VC would now run a coordinated campaign in conjunction with the NVA. And like it or not, every Vietnamese citizen was regarded as a combatant for the communist cause. What did Brigadier Jackson do about this uneasy feeling and the SAS report, you may well ask? Did he strengthen his defences? Did he alter his strategy in any way? Well, no. He didn't do anything. The reason is, early in his tenure, he'd somewhat overreacted to a perceived threat. He'd contacted his superiors in Vungtau, warning of an enemy build-up in the area. Lieutenant General John Wilton basically told him to stop panicking. The VC would never attack a defended base. It just wasn't what they do. Jackson was somewhat humiliated by the response, so when he received reports of NVA arriving in the province, he decided it was nothing serious. Certainly nothing to overreact to and possibly be removed from his command by a Lieutenant Colonel who may start thinking Jackson didn't have the bottle for this kind of thing. He did take the precaution of sending Captain Bob Keep of the Intelligence Section to seek support in case of an attack. In the words of the Planning Officer Major Alex Piper, the Americans almost laughed us out of court. The Yanks had been doing all they could to try and provoke a VC attack, without luck, and now here were the Australians apparently having kittens over that very prospect. It was another humiliation for Jackson and his command, and does go part way to explaining his actions in the very near future. Then it all calmed down again. No more reports of NVA troops were received, patrols found no evidence of an increase in enemy activity, and the crisis was largely forgotten. But they hadn't gone away. Up in the Long High Mountains, the Viet Cong D-445 battalion was biding its time and gathering the resources they needed. The D-445 thought of themselves as Phuc own, with connections in many towns and villages. The battalion provided a link between the village-based guerrillas and the two main force regiments in the area, the 274th and the 275th. The main force regiments wanted to attack Nui Dat as early as June. They were keen to get to grips with the Australians, who they viewed as potentially an easier target than the Americans, due to the fact that there were only two battalions to defeat. An easy win over America's most loyal ally would be an embarrassment to Washington and Canberra, and maybe would even convince them of the futility of continuing the fight. They didn't attack in June, and July passed without serious incident. But by early August, the intelligence officers of 5 and 6 RAR reported that, there was obviously an increasing amount of enemy movement. I got the impression they could be building to something. Column Townsend was just as concerned as I was. Column Townsend was the commanding officer of 6RAR. Another sign that something wicked was this way coming was from a very secret source. So secret, in fact, that only Brigadier Jackson, the two intelligence officers, and the operations officer knew where it came from. It was the 547 Signals Troop. Never heard of them? Neither had I. That's probably the main point of a secret intelligence unit, eh? Their job was to use cutting-edge technology for the time to intercept Morse code messages as they bounced off the ionosphere and use that to pinpoint the location of enemy radios to about 400 to 500 metres. They were actually much more accurate than that, but a margin of error was added so that their information would be regarded as intelligence and not an exact grid reference for fire missions. It didn't pinpoint the location of enemy units, only the radio. So just because a regimental radio was identified, it didn't necessarily mean that the regiment was also at that location. On the 29th of July 1966, 547 locked onto the signals from two radio sets, which they found to belong to the 274th and 275th regiments. The 275th regiment had been quiet for days, and as it came back, the signals hinted that troops were joining the regiment and preparing to move. Then, over the next few days, the location of the 275th Regiment's radio began to move. In small bounds, almost as if the operator was moving and then stopping to relay messages, the radio moved westward in the direction of Nui Dat. Surely this was a convincing sign that something serious was about to happen, evidence that a North Vietnamese Army Regiment was making a beeline for the task force. Captain Richards took the information directly to Jackson, and Jackson, who wasn't too sure about this newfangled stuff, didn't really see the seriousness of the situation. Richards did his best to persuade Jackson, but he was only a captain and Jackson a brigadier. Only in the Defence Force can a high-ranked officer choose to question the advice of a specialist simply because that specialist is of lower rank. Not to be discouraged, Richards took his information to the two intelligence officers, Rowe and his subordinate, Keep. Rowe dismissed him without hearing his report. Or so Richards stated. Rowe didn't recall any such encounter. Keep was much more interested, and when he saw the plots where the signals had been picked up, he took Richards to Jackson on 6th of August, completely bypassing Rowe and the operations officer Hannigan. Keep apparently had eyes for Roe's job, and thought it was a good way to go about getting it. He was, after all, Jackson's favourite officer. So, when he presented the information, Jackson called on Rowe and Hannigan to discuss it, but both men were completely unaware of what Richards and Keep had to show. Needless to say, when the meeting was over... Rowe gave Keep an absolute blasting for his insubordination. Not long after, Keep had a complete breakdown. According to him, he felt a huge responsibility to the men of the task force, and this tracking of the NVA radio, slowly making its way towards them, was a portent of doom and there was nothing he could do about it. This may have been the case, but it appears that an RWAF officer was keen on pressing charges against Keep, relating to what would have been a scandalous behavior at the time. Keep had made sexual advances towards another RAAF officer. Yes, he was, allegedly, gay, and that, being illegal at the time, meant that his career was over. But rather than publicly disgrace the man by a public court-martial, Jackson arranged for him to be flown out of Vietnam on medical grounds. Despite all this drama, the fact remains that intelligence showed that the 275th Regiment was on its way. Jackson had the information, but he didn't pass it on. Lieutenant Colonel Townsend knew nothing of it, and so couldn't pass it on to his company and platoon commanders. Jackson did order an increase in company patrols, which found nothing. On the eve of the biggest battle the Australians would find themselves in and during the Vietnam War, Jackson, according to Lieutenant David Harris, still believed that the enemy wasn't strong enough, or stupid enough, to place themselves within the range of substantial artillery and attack the base. Nearly all intelligence received was treated with suspicion and usually downgraded. Captains Steele and Goodwin repeatedly tried to alert Jackson to just how poorly the base was protected. They had very little wire out, no mines, bunkers, concrete reinforcements or overhead protection for weapons pits. Maybe Jackson should have listened to his junior officers because things were about to get serious. In the wee small hours of the 17th of August, the quiet of the task force base was interrupted by a series of loud explosions. At 2.43am, a a 22-minute barrage of mortar and recoilless rifle fire was unleashed. With the speed of a 1,000 startled gazelles, the men of the task force flew out of their beds, abandoned card games or whatever else they may have been doing, and ran for the weapons pits. The 1st Australian Field Regiment and the New Zealand 161st Battery started lobbing shells into the dark, but they weren't just firing blindly. All around the perimeter, men were taking compass bearings on where they heard the incoming shots were being fired. By plotting those positions on the map, the artillery headquarters could narrow down the target area and start dropping shells uncomfortably close to the mortars. In those 22 minutes, 100 rounds hit the task force base and wounded 24 men, destroyed 7 vehicles and 21 tents. And then, it all went quiet. Standing in their weapons pits, ears ringing and temporarily blinded by the sudden darkness, the troops braced themselves for what they felt was the inevitable attack by infantry troops straining their eyes and ears for anything that would give away the presence of the enemy, the tension grew and grew, but nothing. No charge, no sound, and no movement at all. Soldiers often say the worst part of war is the waiting. Your nerves are on edge, knowing that soon you're going to be fighting for your life, and maybe losing that fight. And so here was the 1st Australian Task Force, standing, waiting, and waiting, probably almost praying for the first shot that would signal the attack. At least the waiting would be over. By 4.40am nothing was coming and so Jackson ordered Bravo Company of 6 RAR to head out and locate the mortar position. An 80 man patrol led by Major Noel Ford set out and at 8.10 they found the mortar base plates, the sites of five mortars and weapons pits. Ford continued the search and Townsend ordered Alpha Company and a platoon of Charlie Company, both already out on patrol, to join the search. Bravo and Alpha Companies continued the search all day and spent the following night in the bush. They had not found any enemy troops, but had a general feeling that they were about somewhere. According to Lieutenant Peter Dinham of Alpha Company, The whole forest was deathly quiet. Normally there were cicadas and birds, but there were no animal noises. It was almost as though the people were there, watching us through the rubber. As Bravo and Alpha were conducting their search on the 17th, Jackson and his senior officers conducted an inspection of the base. They noted 67 mortar craters, and as they were driving down Canberra Avenue, Captain Jim Townley pointed out to Jackson the tail fins of what he felt was an 82mm Chikon mortar round. These were Russian-made mortars used only by NVA troops. Another clue that the North was heading their way. But Jackson ignored it, telling Townley it was just the standard VC 60mm round. It seemed that Jackson was going to downplay anything that suggested the real scale of the threat facing his command. Many men at the time were amazed at just how poor Jackson's preparations were, given all the available evidence. His almost cavalier attitude unnerved some. He was so unconcerned that he didn't even think it necessary to cancel a planned concert for the base on the following day, just over 24 hours after being subjected to a mortar attack. Cole Joy and the Joy Boys was scheduled to play a number of shows throughout the 18th so that any man on duty could catch a show after they'd been relieved. Little Patty was also a part of the show, a 17-year-old girl known for her hit single, Surfer Boy. That a brigadier would allow a young girl and a bunch of civilian musicians into the perimeter shows just how complacent Jackson was. Maybe those rebukes he'd received earlier in his tenure were playing on his mind, keen not to overreact and become known as a panic merchant. Hindsight is 2020, but it does seem incredible. On the morning of the 18th, Major Harry Smith was ordered to take the 108 men of Delta Company to relieve Major Ford and Bravo Company. Just as Little Paddy and Coljoy were setting up for their first show, Delta Company moved through the gap in the wire to go and meet up with Bravo Company, no doubt a bit disappointed to be missing the show. Second Lieutenant David Sabins' 12th platoon led the way. Saban was an intelligent young man who actually couldn't wait to be conscripted. With the Indonesian confrontation in 1965, Saban rolled up to the Victoria Barracks and wouldn't leave until he was signed on. He was lauded as Australia's first volunteer conscript. Behind 12 platoon, 2nd Lieutenant Jeff Kendall's ten Platoon followed. Kendall was a first grade rugby league player from Queensland who had joined the regular army. He didn't have a high opinion of the conscripts, feeling that they didn't have the right military sensibility. Thumb in bum and mind in neutral is how he regarded most of them. After Long Tan, he did a complete 180 on that one. And bringing up the rear was 11 platoon, with 2nd Lieutenant Gordon Sharp in command. Of the three platoon commanders, Sharp was the only one who didn't really want to be in the army. He was a conscript, but he figured if he was going to go to Vietnam, then he'd do his best and pushed himself to excel at officer training school at Shaeville. In civilian life, he was a cameraman, and so spent much of his time with the pressmen but here he was, in charge of 30 men, heading out to find the enemy. As Saban led his men out, Major Harry Smith called out, ''Okay, Saban, we want to get there quickly. Go for it.'' Harry Smith was a former commando and had operated in Malaya during the Malaysian emergency. He had high standards for himself and demanded the same from his men. He trained them as though they were commandos and pushed them beyond anything the other companies had to endure. If the battalion did a 20 kilometer forced march, Smith would make Delta Company do another five kilometres. If anyone didn't measure up, they'd be moved on. At first, this created some resentment among his men. But as often happens in the army, the fact that they were pushed harder soon became a badge of honour for the men. Before long, having Major Harry Smith as your commanding officer was a point of pride, and Delta Company felt themselves to be a cut above the rest. But regardless of who the officers were, without good platoon commanders, an infantry company isn't much good, and Delta had some of the best. The company sergeant major was Jack Kirby, veteran of Korea. Bob Buick of 11 Platoon, who once said of his men, Quote, If those bastards don't like me, it doesn't matter, because the only time they'll have the opportunity to shoot me, they'll be shooting at somebody else. Fair enough. 12 Platoon had Paddy Todd, who had served in Korea and Malaya, and 10 Platoon had Sergeant Rankin, a man of great decency who didn't drink, a trait some men treated with suspicion. And rounding out the list of important men was Captain Maurice Stanley. As Delta's forward observation officer, his job was to call in any artillery support the troops might need. It was a nerve-wracking job. Get it wrong and the big guns back at Newey Dat would be dropping shells on their own troops. Or just as bad, dropping them too far behind the enemy and doing no good. His skill and nerve would be sorely tested over the coming hours. No one in Delta Company knew what Jackson and his intelligence officers knew. None of that information had been passed on. At most, Delta probably thought they'd encounter a handful of VC, but more than likely they'd be spending a quiet and boring night out in the sticks, while everyone else got the party on throughout the afternoon. About two and a half kilometres east of Nui Smith met up with Ford on the edge of the Long Tan Rubber Plantation at about 1pm. Ford showed him some blood trails and the detritus of the previous day's shelling. With a few good natured jokes about heading back to catch the afternoon concert, Bravo bugged out and left Delta Company to it. And that's where we'll leave Part 1. All the pieces are in place. The North Vietnamese forces have successfully lured out an Australian company. Now to destroy them. From the Australian point of view, most of the task force are enjoying Cold Joy and Little Paddy, while Bravo Company are heading back and Delta Company are deciding which way to go to track down a good fight. In a very short time, they'll get their fight. We'll catch you next time enjoyed that episode? If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at AustralianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com